this, but that's what we said. God has another idea, and so we're going to humbly submit to the Lord tonight. And uh, God has something I feel sure that he must feel like that we need to hear it talked about. So we're going to deal from the St. Matthew, the seventh chapter, the job that's left to the church, condemnation or restoration. I want us to listen to what God has to say to us and understand that he is, even though these words were written almost 2,000 years ago, he's still talking to us tonight. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of St. Matthew. He carries it on. It's good reading. It's, It's blessed reading and also some challenging readings. And he continues on through the sixth chapter of St. Matthew, and he makes a summation of it in the seventh chapter. And uh, I guess in order to get the full gist of what he's trying to say, I would need to read the whole chapter. So just uh, hang on to the sides of the boat and let's get going with it, all right? Uh, While I think of it, uh, our daughter Karen called from, uh, should have announced this and we forgot it, she called from uh, La Plata, Missouri, and her husband's niece, they, in fact, he and his first wife raised the niece pretty much. But anyway, she got involved with a young man who had eventually got on dope, and uh, he become a dealer in dope, and uh, he went to collect from a young person that owed him $600, and the man said he didn't have it, so... He took out a gun and shot him in the head and killed him. And uh, this girl is involved in that some way. She claims she was kidnapped, forced to go with him. And uh, he claims she's the one that did the killing. But anyway, they're all upset about it. And she did call and Scott wanted the church to remember his mother and his brother as well as him in prayer. Now, I know that don't mean much to some of us other than it is people in trouble. And uh, when they feel confidence enough in us to ask us to pray, then we should do that. So the, the girl's name is Vicki, and I don't know her last name. Her name is Vicki. So remember them both, especially the young lady. If she was involved, she is in the hospital right now, and she's just babbling like a mad person. So whether she's involved in it or whether it was such a shock to her, Nobody knows because they can't get the story straight. All right, let's begin reading St. Matthew, the seventh chapter. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, the emphasis is going to be on the first verse. But in order to get to what God is talking about, we need to really read the whole chapter. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote in thy brother's eye? But considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Notice the strong language. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam of their own eye, and thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. 
To him that knocketh it shall be opened. I want you to notice those promises there, and we'll deal with that too. Or what man is there of you whom if a son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask of him? Therefore all things, whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go therein, or thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Should have noticed that one too. As a bearing, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are raving wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits shall you know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, these are not just bunches of things that Jesus wanted to say and throw them together that has no bearing on one another. They all connected Jesus, in other words, hinges the entire chapter upon the ability to receive and to obey the first verse of the chapter. Everything that he talked about in this last chapter is hinged upon his our abilities to obey the first verse, which is, Judge not that you be not judged. Notice it says, Ask and seek and knock. And these are promises that God has made, but they are contingent upon the obedience of verse 1. Right. You see, we like to claim a lot of things that God has said, but we don't tie them in to the responsibility that he gives us at first. Right. Now notice he starts off the chapter, don't judge that you be not judged, and he goes on to say what's going to happen, but he turns around and he talks about asking, it'll be given to you, seeking you, will find, knocking will be open, and all of those are yours, if, of course, you have been obedient to verse 1. You see, this might answer a lot of our questions as to why some of our promises we claim that God has given us is not answered. Some of the things that God said was ours and we try to claim them and hold God's feet to the fire on His promises, but we never look to see what is contingent on. So he's getting into some meat of the Word of God here and uh, the ask, seek, and knock promises, again, are contingent upon our abilities to be obedient to verse 1. And then in verse 13, he talks about two ways. Which one we walk in is dependent on how we have mastered verse 1. Whether we are able to walk the right way, or broad way, or whatever, verse 1 says, Judge not, that you be not judged. And the two ways is dependent on how we handle verse 1. 
Then he talks about the two trees in verse 15, the type of fruit that we bear again is connected on how you resolve verse 1 in your Christian life. Amen? How much fruit are you going to bring? And if you master verse 1 in your individual life, you're going to be a good tree and you're going to be uh, bring forth good fruit. If you do not master verse 1, then you're not going to be a good tree and you're not going to bring forth good fruit. Again, judge not that you be not judged. He felt it necessary to write these and give the Sermon on the Mount and felt it necessary to preserve them because he felt like that all of us down through the ages of time was going to have to understand that he has some obligations to us and we have some obligations to him to be the type of Christians we ought to be. And then in verse 21 and 23, uh, the judgment that he pronounced upon professing Christians is foolproof that verse 1 had never been applied to their lives because they was not allowed into the kingdom of God. Verse 24 talks about two foundations. And that shows a wise man that's adhering to verse 1, thereby he builds a solid, solid life. And also a foolish man who thought the writings of the scriptures and what Jesus has said was for everybody else. But for him his house fell, all contingent upon verse 1. People who live out their lives judging others will in the end, of course, Jesus tells us, is going to suffer a great fall. Now, I argued with the Lord on this and wondered uh, just uh, what was necessary in this and uh, perhaps why he wanted it so desperately to change the message that I had thought uh, that I would deliver. Why did he want it so desperately? And I have to leave that up to him. But I'm only asking you tonight to consider what God has to say and consider some things in your own life and don't try to push it off on somebody else. God is trying to tell us in this chapter how to get the things we want. Ask, and it shall be given. Contingent upon whether you have been a judge of somebody's life or not wrongly. Uh, seek and you'll find. And many of us have come to God and sought some things of God. They haven't materialized, but we've never looked at verse 1. We've never tried to understand what God is trying to say to us. And also knock and it'll be open and on and on. The wonderful, beautiful promises of God that he hinges upon just a few words. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. Judge not that you be not judged. Right. Now the context makes it very clear that the thing condemned here is that disposition that almost all of us have to look unfavorably upon the character and action of others if they don't measure up to our standards. I mean, we are trying to see man in the life of man and not in the eyes of God. And this attitude invariably leads to our pronouncement of rash judgments, unjust judgments, unloving judgments, and judgments made that are untruthful. And this is what God is getting at there. He is aiming at the spirit of judgment or condemnation. Where we look at individual lives and make judgments about them. Now we're going to name some things here that's going to help us if you listen. But he prohibits us from making those type of judgments. Rash judgments, unjust, untruthful, whatever of others. And you have to ask why did he at this time pick out the time to censor us or prohibit us from making judgments. 
All we have to do is look at our readiness to observe the faults of others. <laughs> Amen. Come on, saints. Come on. Whenever we look at other people, they have glaring faults. There's not a one of you in here uh, that doesn't have a glaring fault. And we look at that, and we're ready then to observe that. And there's no question about our abilities to see the faults in other individuals. But the question is, Jesus asked, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? In other words, that little speck that's in your brother's eye when you've got a log or a rafter in your own eye. How can you see clearly what is wrong with this other individual when you are blinded by something larger than that? But of course, we don't see that. Of course, we don't understand that perhaps we have got as great a fault, maybe greater faults, than the individual we're making the rash judgment on. So that's why Jesus censors us from making just snap judgments upon individuals. B, he does that because of our failings to observe the faults of our own, which he points out, why do you not consider the beam that is in your own eye? In other words, I think he's asking us to search our own life first. Let's don't be judgmental on lives until we can judge our own lives. Until we can see our own faults. Now God can make our faults known to us if we would be humble enough to understand when he's talking to us. If we come to him and ask him to reveal to us our failures and our downfalls. We do want to go to heaven, don't we? We do want to make an end and we do want to be the type of Christian that God wants to walk in this present earth. And Jesus, knowing that we was going to need some encouragement through the scriptures and some laws written down, we're not lost on Christianize us, but there are laws in here that we need to observe that would make us better Christians and cause no condemnation to come upon us. Have to recognize the job of the church is to restore. I think the thing that bothers me mostly is, especially in leadership when it's in the church too, is uh, there seems to be no spirit to restore. There always seems to be a spirit of condemnation. Somebody gets down, why then condemn? And sure, maybe they're, maybe they're responsible for their fall. Maybe uh, they have had glaring things and they have fallen, but what is our job? What are we here for? Are we here then to just condemn them? Or rather not to try to understand, get to the core of the matter, and see if we can restore them to the type of life that they need to be living in Christ Jesus. But in order to restore them, we have to be above making the same mistakes that they make. Can you say amen to that? Now, that's number. Now, see, is because of our readiness to forget that our relationship with our brother will determine God's relationship to us. Now, sometimes we're a little alienated from God simply because we have alienated our brother. And that alienates us from God, all right? Isn't this what he's saying inside there? We forget that whatever relationship toward our brother is going to determine God's relationship to us. He says that with what judgment ye judge, you're going to be judged. In other words, you make a judgment on that individual, I'm going to make a judgment on you. God knows we don't want God's judgment. We want God's mercy. But His mercy, again, is contingent upon our ability to understand why He wants. Now then, the question is, knowing that we're censored from this, knowing that we're prohibited from doing this, uh, how are we going to heed that? How are we going to understand? How are we going to take control of that? How are we going to stop 
our condemning spirit and our criticizing attitude. How are we going to stop that? Well, Jesus never pointed out our faults at any time without telling us some ways to remedy those faults. And he does that in there by being concerned about our own shortcomings. In other words, be concerned about us first because sometimes our shortcomings are just as serious or maybe more so sometimes as those we observe in others. Behold a beam in thine own eye. In other words, look and see what is in your own eye. Understand that you can't make a clear judgment upon a life and upon an inability until you can see clearly your own self. Until you can get in right relationship with God. So being concerned, number one, about our own shortcomings. Always, first of all, when we come to God, be concerned about ours. If we think we don't have any, ask God and He'll let you know you've got several of them. Alright? He'll open up your own life to you and then once knowing that, He wants you to work on that. He don't want you to look out and say, well, I'm just as good as so-and-so because they do this and they do that. That's not the question. That's not the premise of the thing. That's not what God is talking about. He's talking about your life. He's talking about what you are and what you're doing and what He wants you to do, the type of life He wants you to live. And so look at your own self, number one, and then seek to remedy your own condition. Don't just ask God to show you that. And then hide behind the fact that that's your nature. <laughs> that's just my nature. That's just the way I am. I mean, my whole tribe's that way. All of them been like this ever since I can remember. And so I got a right to be like this. No, you don't. If you've taken on the nature of Jesus Christ, He's not like that, alright? So you have to understand that. Seek to remedy your condition before. Let me get that right. Before you try to reprove your brother for his faults. <laughs> Before you sit down and say, I'm going to straighten them out. I'm going to tell them exactly where they're wrong at. And be sure that you have faced your own failures first. Alright? There's nothing wrong with going to somebody and talking to them in love and consideration about some of the things in their life that is not right. But to do that, when we ourselves cannot see clearly in our own life about what's going on, hinders us again from receiving these things that I just talked about. Hinders us from being a good tree fruitful. Hinders us from being able to ask and seek and knock. Hinders us from being able to lay a good foundation. Hinders us from being able to be what God wants us to be. And He says that. In the book that I just read to you. And he begins that. And I want to get that in your spirit. He begins it in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Amen. And then he says all of these things that are in there. If you have qualified verse 1. Why then you'll be able to have them. And I'd like to see us try that. And see if God would not bless us in our lives. And in our church. And in our ways. Number 1 by being concerned about our own shortcomings, seeking a remedy for them, asking God to reveal them, and then asking God to give us or help us to use the strength He's given us to be able to take care of our own life. And remembering this, that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ or a righteous judge. Romans 14.10, God says, I want to relieve you of any obligation you might think you have 
when it comes to making judgment upon individual lives. I want to relieve you of that responsibility you've taken on yourself. For he says that, that, that in this, this way, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, why are you trying to be and make a judgment when there, everybody's going to stand before me and I'm going to make the right judgment? Amen. Amen. That's what God is trying to tell us. And He's trying to tell us that if we want some things... Now, we have dealt in these issues before because I feel like that we are asking God, expecting things from God, just like we're just going to continue our own ways, doing our own thing, and all at once God's going to feel sorry for us and just pour out an abundance from heaven and give us those things that He said we could not have until we adhered to the commandment. Well, He's not going to do it. He laid down the facts. He told us what we had to be in order to get the things that He asked us there. Now there's four things that we ought to do before we pass judgment on our brother. Number one, make sure we know the facts about the case. There's always two sides to everything. And most of us usually just want to hear one. Amen? Don't be rash in your judgment. Don't look at a life and somebody says it and immediately just go and say, well, that's just what I thought. I figured that's just what would happen to him and all of that. And you don't know anything about the side of the man, woman, boy or girl. You've heard only one. And you're making a judgment and you're making it rash. And Jesus says, don't do that. Make sure we understand the motives of the individual that's involved and be just. In our condemnation or in our judgments of them. Be just in those. Realizing there could be extenuating circumstances. Reasons behind that. And usually that's the case. And make sure, number three, that we ourselves are not prejudiced but we're loving. And whatever judgment we make or condemnation we might make, do it with the love of God in our heart and life. Don't do it with spite and envy of getting back to somebody and on somebody because they have done something to you. Friend, that is what God is trying to say. If you want these things, don't be a judge and don't be a judge rashly. And make sure, number four, is that we ourselves are righteous before God, walking in all the commandments of the Lord, according to Luke 1, 6, blameless. Now, there wouldn't be a lot of judging going on, would there? Amen, Brother Hoskall. If we looked at our lives and say, God, am I righteous before you? Am I walking in all the commandments of the Lord and what you've asked me to do? Am I blameless in your sight? And if I am, Lord, I can make a judgment. But until then, God asks us to censor any judgment and He prohibits us from making these type of judgments. What causes this type of spirit? What brings on a condemning spirit? Well, I have several scriptures that I jotted down. was just going to let you read them, but I think I'll uh, turn to them and try to read them to you so you'll know they're in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 is one of them. See if I can turn over to there. It says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, Working not at all, but are busybodies. In other words, that brings on that type of a spirit. All right? Then 1 Peter 4 and 15. 
1 Peter 4 and 15. I want to be sure that that is in the Bible, okay? 1 Peter 4 and 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. I sat pretty close to a minister in the conference, and I am acquainted with him, and I have never heard him talk, and I have never listened to him say anything without bringing a character of somebody up to malignant. And yet he wonders what's the matter in his life. So you see, the Bible condemns a gossip type of attitude. A Bible condemns busybodies. If you want to talk about anything, talk about God. If you want to talk about anybody, find something good in them and talk about that. Or otherwise, don't say anything, but make that as a matter of prayer. And ask God to change your disposition as well as theirs. And uh, let us understand that. Also in Romans 12, 3 through 8. He tells us some good things there. Need to read those. I believe it's 12, 3 through 8. For I say, through the grace of God and to me, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, every one member one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, on ministry let us wait on our ministry, on he that teacheth on teacheth, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now what he's trying to say here is in their efforts sometimes, pride and love of authority, criticizing others in order to improve their own situation and reputation in the congregation or in the community. And he's telling us to avoid those things. We have our own ministry. We are not to have a ministry of somebody else. Every saint of God has a ministry. And we're not to try to imitate the ministry of anybody else or we're not try to uh, gain preeminence just because of what we do or what we say. Now here are some consequences on this type of spirit. It clouds our reason. We're not able to think right or pray right. It perverts the intellectual powers of our mind. We're simply in a cloud of our own. It prevents any peace and contentment of our heart. As the Bible says, or the saying is, hate destroys the hater and not the hated. And when we find this type of condemning spirit, we find all of those things. As there's no peace and there's no contentment. And nothing is good any place simply because of this type of spirit. It's easy... Again, I'm going to say to us all, it's easy to find something to condemn somebody about. And God says, don't do that. Just in plain language, I don't want you to do that. And then it exposes us to the same condemning spirit by God himself. Now, have you ever thought about that? 
that how you look on somebody else is the way at the time that God is looking on you? Now, how many of you have ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about God outside of anything but loving mercy for God that will put up with anything that you do in any way? Have you ever thought about the fact that while you're doing these things, God is looking down with the same condemnation in your life? Now, that's a scary position to be in. Because if God was to come and snap us out in that condition... I'm not sure where our soul would spend eternity. Because God is not looking on us as Christians. He's looking upon us as condemning individuals unjustly many times. So that's one of the consequences. A lot of us might have suffered under those consequences. Some of us may be suffering on those consequences now. I'm not understanding what's wrong in our life. What's happening? whole world is topsy-turvy. Nothing is going right. And yet we stand, saying with condemnation upon other individuals and judging them, not understanding that God, by the same token, is condemning us. God have mercy upon us to understand that. And believe that He loves us enough that He would deal with a subject like this to get us out of the fuzziness have our own inabilities. And make us understand that it's not all a Sunday school picnic. And He doesn't just bring us in here to let us go and do and say however we want to. There's ways in which God handles us. And God would rather for us to be able to come to Him with a loyal spirit, with somebody that we uh, see and ask Him to help them to do what is right and then ourselves if we feel like that we could help them find out where we're at first. Get this log out of your eye so it can clearly see his beam or his little moat that's in his eye. By the way, you can better understand him. And it brings the righteous judgment of Almighty God upon us. Now when I thought about that, goosebumps went up and down my back. To let us know that he was talking to individuals who had found Christ. That he was talking to individuals that had been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ or would be. That he's laying down laws in the New Testament that has to be followed. And he tells us. I just read it to you. Go read it again. That when we're doing this and making judgments on somebody else, the righteous judgment of God is upon us. And were it not for His mercy, and in our ignorance because we didn't know any better, that judgment could become a reality. A lot of people are under judgment that don't even know they're under judgment. They know something's wrong in their life. They know that things are not right in their life. But we are so proud and so cocky and so pious and have done what we've got ready for so long that we've never thought that it could be our own particular fault. Don't look at me like that. You know it's so. 
And God don't want to judge us. He wants us uh, to wait until we come to the judgment seat of Christ. And there he's going to judge us according to our works. But this is not according to works. It's according to attitudes and the way that we do things. Now there is a cure for this. An honest examination of ourselves. I've said that list is four times. Did you keep count? An honest examination of ourselves. And if we will do this, we'll be too busy to look at the faults of anybody else. I mean, that is an all-day, 12-hour day, 12-hour night, 24-hour job of searching out our own failures and our own faults. If we would get in our prayer closet and ask God to reveal to us our own faults, and ask God to help us to do something about that, we wouldn't have time to meddle in anybody else's affair. We would just simply be too busy taking care of number one. And that's what God intended. God meant for us to always have our little beady eyes upon ourselves and see where we perhaps have missed a boat. And also a reliance, humble reliance, on God's saving grace and sanctifying power that looks up to Him. You see, a proud individual can't do that. A proud life can't do that. A proud life can't admit that they have been wrong. I know individuals that I don't know whether they have ever said or even thought that they were wrong one time. It has always been somebody else that has been wrong. Never at any time have they ever taken it on themselves to have been wrong. And then they wonder, what is happening? I just told you what's happening. God is looking down with condemnation upon that unrepentant life and allowing judgment to come. Judgment doesn't mean that He's going to throw you in hell's fire and burn you right off. Judgment means you walked out from the umbrella of God and the things He used to protect you from, He doesn't anymore. And he's allowing you to wander out here until some way you might come to your senses and understand something is wrong with me. It's just not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Also, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful. Unto me a sinner. Hard to say, isn't it? But Lord, you forgive me of my sin years ago and I haven't sinned since. God help an attitude like that. But a lot of us secretly feel that way. You know, we, we go ahead and sin. A sin is what? A transgression of God's law. And if God commands us to do something and we don't do it, that's a sin. Or if God tells us not to do something and we do it, that's a sin. All have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. Okay? Now there's also some, some facts. There's three, and I want you to get them down, that are brought out in this, list, in this lesson. Sin may exist in a man to an enormous extent, and yet he be unconscious of it. That's right. Jesus points that out in these verses. He tells us that there is a possibility 
that you're looking too much at the other person and you've never really looked at your own life and therefore sin is in there and it's enormous and you're not aware of it because we're too busy trying to get somebody else's life straightened out. And also it tells us however unconscious we are of our sins, we're always going to be aware of the sin of others. Now, we don't have to be told that. We know that, don't we? I mean, it's not a big problem for us to see the failure of somebody else. And also it lets us and teaches us that self-improvement is necessary qualification for the improvement of others. In other words, if you're going to try to help somebody improve their life, you have to, number one, improve yours. Amen. Amen. First, cast out the beam out of your own eye. That's the word of God. That's not my words. If you're going to deal with anything at all, if you're going to help somebody else improve their life, and that ought to be the goal of everybody, is whatever we do, and whenever we go to somebody, it ought to be for the improvement of their life, not to downgrade their lives. But even then, it's a cautious life. It's a cautious path to follow because first we have to make the improvement of our own life. We have to look at ourselves and say, now, are you able to see clearly? Or do you see it in a biased way? Do you know all the facts? Do you understand what this is all about? What is your reason for wanting to approach this individual? Uh, what value is it going to do to uh, face them down? What are your plans? Are you wanting to get revenge? Are you wanting to restore? Are you wanting to help? Are you wanting to hurt? And you see, all of these issues has to be faced in their own life. And we have to be honest with one another and ask, are we having animosity in our life? Is there hatred, envy, malice, strife? Has that gathered in our life until we can't see plainly those things that are in it? Has it hardened our heart enough that God Himself cannot even touch it? Questions we ask ourselves. Questions brought out by those few words that's in the seventh chapter. Judge not that you be not judged. In other words, Jesus is telling us on the safe side, don't make any judgments. On the safe side, let me do that. You see, we've got things all backwards. You see, we're wanting Jesus to go out here and the Spirit of God to go out here and witness the individuals out here and we want to make the judgment. And God has said, you go out there and do the witnessing and I'll make the judgments. Okay? So let's don't turn things around, okay? Now then, some sayings from uh, Brother F.E. Marsh. This is what he says. Critics see more than there is and make up the rest. <laughs> he also says we shall be fully occupied if we keep our own doorstep clean. Number three, he said we often see in others what is in ourselves. And it's always easier to deal with that on the other person than it is to deal with his own us. So what we have when we see that individual sometimes, it's the glaring image of what we are and we don't like it. And so instead of changing us, we seek to change them. That'll never change us. Okay. 
Let us be careful, lest the mote in our brother's eye be but a reflection of the beam in our own eye. Even the best judgment of the most qualified should be most cautiously expressed, this man says. D.C. Hughes says, I am so fully occupied in praising and reading and praising the Lord and thanking Him for His goodness that I have no time for judgments or criticism. Would to God every life would be filled with that. The church's responsibility... Notice John 3, 17, 18. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved, or the world through him might be restored. And he left us with that commission. Galatians 6, 1 talks about that. Give me some time to get to that. Galatians 6, 1. It says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of weakness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In other words, there is not a temptation that is familiar to man that some way or other, if we are not careful, we'll fall through that temptation. And in restoring somebody from their fall and what they have done in restoring them, consider the fact that that could have been you. And all possibilities had not been for the grace of God. That could have been us. That makes restoration. That causes us to reach down and get the hand of that individual and lift them up. And let them know not compromising with the fact that what they've done is right. But letting them know also that you understand and God Almighty can restore them through the Spirit of God. Also, Romans 15, 1 through 7. Got some good things to say. I think it's 15. So if we then that are strong ought to bear it. See, a lot of this thing is repetition brought out in a different way. So evidently God must think we haven't inherited some of it. But he's not going to teach us the same lesson over and over if we already know it. Okay? Not doing all right. I mean, I mean, you're not going to find a teacher in school after you've found out they know that lesson. They're not going to just teach it over and over. And God doesn't do that either. So he says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. But let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience, consolation, grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive you one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles. And again, he saith, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. All right. We have strong warnings from God on murmuring. They're so filled and criticizing and complaining. On our chart some time ago, it gave us some logs that were stopping up the flow 
that couldn't reach out into the community. Among them, of course, and all related to that, was criticism and critical attitudes. Psalms 1-1, reaching way back into the Old Testament, says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, and that word is translated criticizer or complainer. He says, Blessed is that man that don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't take the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't seat, sit in the seat of the criticizer or the complainer. Amen. Now the A number one reason, and this is not news to you, that the children of Israel all died in the wilderness except two, was because they sat in the seat of the complainer, criticizer, or murmurer. There wasn't one single thing that Moses ever did that pleased this generation. And yet he was God's man to draw them out of Egypt and lead them. We sang that song and he says that's what's going to happen. But not one thing did this man ever do to get away from criticizing and complaining. And for that reason, God says I'm going to take you into the wilderness and you're not going to come out. Two individuals stood there with no complaints at all on the power of God. Had one bad thing to say about what Moses had done, led them to the edge of the promised land, sent them in, and they came back with a report, and Joshua and Caleb said, we can take the land. They had nothing critical at all, just saying we can do it. They came out on the other side. The rest of them died in the wilderness of despair. All of this, a number one reason was sitting in the seat of the scornful, complaining and murmuring, never satisfied, making judgments upon those God Himself had chosen, and making judgment upon them, creating and inciting disobedience, and causing havoc among the tribes. And God says, I can't have it. And it all showed up in their inabilities to believe God. They should have believed Him. They, should have, they saw everything that God has done. And if we could take some time tonight to see what God has done in our lives, we would take some time to rejoice and forget all of this other mess that we get in sometimes. Their unbelief in the Master, who He was and who He called, showed up when he said, it's your land, you go get it. And they said, we can't do it, there's giants in the land. Philippians 2, 14, 15 says, do all things without murmuring. In other words, whatever is asked of you to do, whatever God lays on you to do, whatever is asked of you from leadership, do it without murmuring and complaining. Don't be criticizing, don't be complaining. Get your mind set on worship and glowing God and forget all of this other stuff. Amen. Why? Why? The Bible says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and reversed nation, among whom you shine as lights of the world. Yes. Yes. This is if, of course, we do those things without murmuring and complaining. First Corinthians 10 10 says, Neither murmur or criticize ye as some of them murmured. And were destroyed of the destroyer in the wilderness. 
destroyed in the wilderness for what? You might pick up blatant sins, murder, sexual perversion, and all of these things, but uh, God didn't pick that up. And when He wrote it there, He said, simply because they complained and criticized. Seems like such a little thing to us because we do it so often and we're so good at it. And it doesn't really seem like that it ought to be that serious a sin. And yet if we're looking in the Bible and really reading it, and we don't read it with a pious attitude that God meant that for somebody else and not us. And if we really read it, we'll see what He says about it. And we get serious about this thing and try to get it out of our lives. You want to see loved ones saved? You want to see souls saved? You want to see souls healed? You want to see church on fire for God? Move out this little thing. Get it out of the way. Start looking at yourself. Start improving yourself. And start allowing God to work in your own life. And let everybody else work out theirs. Let the Word of God reach in and do what it's supposed to do. If it can't do it, you can't. And there is so much, and I don't know that it goes on a lot here, but I've been in churches where the Word of God comes and it just cuts, and I mean it cuts and it lays low and nobody likes that. And then saints feel like it's their uh, position that they ought to go along and try to ease this up so we won't lose any things. Leave the Word of God alone. Okay? Let it land where it lands and leave it go. Don't be going around putting salve on something because it'll just heal uh, outside and it won't heal inside. And eventually it's going to burst open with corruption. It's going to land on others and infect them. Let the Word of God either heal or cut off. One of the two. Don't be guilty of going around giving soothe syrup to somebody because you might miss them at the church sometime. Let God's Word do what it's supposed to do. Of the seven churches of Asia, and I'm about getting done, hang on to your oars, only two had no glaring sin that enveloped the whole church. I want you to read that. That was Smyrna and Philadelphia. Uh, Ephesus got so involved in her works and her labor that she got to love. Pergamos and Thyatira had gotten so tolerant that anything was acceptable to them just so they wouldn't be branded intolerant and unsociable by the community. Sardis had grown weary and had forgotten the things that she had heard and therefore her garments were spotted. Laodicea had become proud of her own accomplishments and had not given God any glory. You see, the percentage is not good. Only Sardis, out of that whole group, heeded what the Spirit said to her. The Bible says in there, hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. And of all of those, Sardis is the only one that listened to what the Spirit said, repented, and become the light she should have been in her darkened world. One out of five. Twenty percent. That's not a good percentage, is it? No, it is. Ephesus didn't love. Uh, didn't, the word didn't mean anything. They just heard the rebuke and they did nothing else. Pergamus continued to compromise like she always had. Thyatira continued to compromise like she always did. Laodicea died, Laodicea died in her pride. Now in closing, I want to go to Micah. I want you to hear God's controversy, and you've heard this before also, but the repetition not going to hurt anything. I want you to hear the cry of Almighty God concerning His people. 
All my people, he says, third verse, sixth chapter, what have I done unto thee? Wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. In other words, God puts himself on trial. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. I redeemed you out of the house of servants. I sent before you Aaron and Moses and Miriam. Uh, he goes on to list everything that he had done. Now he says, you're weary of me and I don't understand why. Do you have a testimony against me? You've got something to say against me, promises I've made to you I haven't fulfilled. Then I want you to testify against me and I want you to meet him. I want to meet him. God's saying the same thing to Community Chapel tonight. If we've got anything against God, promises that he has made us and you feel like that he hasn't kept his promise on that, look around and see why he hasn't done it. I think it's not going to be hard for us to understand that. Now God doesn't write this. Just to condemn us and put us down and unchristianize us. He writes this to us to make us better understand. So we won't be confused as to why these things are not happening in our midst. He don't want us confused about why we're not seeing the things that we would like to see. And you hear testimonies uh, that God, uh, we want God to do this and we want God to do that. And we see this and we see that and that's fine, well and good. But it's not ever going to happen until we understand what God demands out of us, until we take some initiative, until we start being obedient to what God has to say, and start clearing our own house, and being able to give birth to children, than being able to raise them. Amen. Now you wouldn't want a child born to come into this world as the daughter is, mother is, so is the daughter, and become a criticizing, condemning child. Now would you? And just as sure as the world, whatever a church is, if it's a divided church, then a child comes in a division. If it's a church that's, that, that is with, with this type of thing, then the child comes in and embraces that. If it comes in and there's a power struggle, the child comes in under that type of an atmosphere, and that's what they're raised in. A child, a spiritual child, needs just as good a home as a natural child. Amen. A home filled with love and unity and concern for that child. And whatever, whatever we are, a good parent, whatever we are, we don't want to pass our bad traits on to our children. So we immediately, I know I was a parent, I had a lot of them, still got some of them, but I had a lot of them, I thought, I don't want my children to be this way. I don't want my children to be raised like this. I don't want them to come under that same attitude. What do I do? I start changing my attitude. Amen. I start working on myself. I start presenting them something different. Yes. And then they come up under the atmosphere of something different. Stand with me. That'll be it. I'm done. Now then, it would be interesting to know when we come in Sunday morning if any of us has ever changed that first iota. If we ever really thought about what we do, and we do it so well, and we've done it so long, that we do it just unconsciously. We catch ourselves. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes, like I said, it has just become such an attitude toward us. We just don't get it. We just go on. Same attitude. 
same admonishment, same judgments of God poured out on us sometimes. We don't understand, oh God, why, why is this in my life? What's happening, God? The devil's really after me, and a lot of times it's not the devil at all. A lot of times you just got out under the umbrella of God and He's not protecting you. And there's judgment there. You're judging, He's judging. You're condemning, He's condemning. Amen. So you're not in His good graces at that time. So you don't need to expect good things. Okay? Y'all want to come back Sunday morning? Amen. Three of them do. <laughs> Four. Four wants to come back. Who? He wants to come back, all right. Tim, you come with me. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God bless you. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord for what He is. Father, we thank you tonight. We love you, Father, because you first loved us and because you care about us. I pray, Father, now in the name of Jesus, write it down with an indelible ink upon our heart and upon our soul, Lord. And let us understand every one of us, God. And let us outgrow these things. And let us become mature saints of God. Because of you. Because of Calvary, Lord. And because of a world that's lost and undone and needs saved. Because this is the way to get it done. Thank you, Jesus. We give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you. And remember Sunday school Sunday morning.